Hi, Gary Zacharias again. I'm with The Apologist Bookshelf. A while back, I did a podcast that covered a book called The Politically Incorrect Guide to the Bible. And I want to come back to that again because there were, there were several good chapters there. I want to do another book in that series. This one's called The Politically Incorrect Guide to Science. Now, keep in mind that not all of this book has to do with apologetics, but I find it interesting because I love science. And this talks about things like global warming, um, the DDT ban, um, nuclear power, uh, AIDS diagnosis, uh, toxic chemicals. Actually, the quote-unquote toxic chemicals could be good for you. But, and that's, that's all interesting material, of course. But I wanted to focus on the two chapters, so I'll be kind of skimming through them again, but two chapters that deal with uh, Christianity in particular. The f first one is chapter 12. It's called The Abiding Myths. It says, Flat Earth and Warfare Between Science and Religion. And uh, he starts off by the, the he is Tom Bethel, or Bethel. He's the author. And he said, uh, we've got this legendary idea that educated people believed in a flat earth for centuries. And he says, actually, that legend lives on. And now it's a term of derision. You know, it's like, oh, really? You don't believe in science? You must be a flat earther. Ha, ha. And it says, actually, it's being now charged against people who question evolution. And um, I, I certainly see problems with evolution, but I wouldn't call myself a flat earther. And he says that, that myth of the flat earth is used to imply that before the pre-Christian era, in other words, before the time of Jesus, there was terrific science that was flourishing thanks to the Greeks and the Romans and just all these wonderful people. And then the Christians took over. Oh, no. And it was the Dark Ages. And then finally, after Christianity was pried loose from culture, science got back on its feet at the time of the Enlightenment. And then everything took place again, wonderfully strong and beautiful. I mean, look at that word, Enlightenment. Um, and the idea is that religion is an enemy of science. And finally, science shook it off. And religion has been making war on science. And he says, by the way, that's a myth as well. And then he quotes uh, somebody that's kind of discouraging because I've read some of his material. It's Daniel Burston. He's a former librarian of Congress. And he had a book called The Discoverers, and I read a lot of that. His, here's a quote. It was a 1983 best-selling book. A Europe-wide phenomenon of scholarly amnesia afflicted the continent from AD 300 to at least 1300. During those centuries, Christian faith and dogma suppressed the useful image of the world that had been so slowly, so painfully, and so scrupulously drawn by ancient geographers. So he called that time period the Great Interruption. Notice that? Great Interruption. There was great learning. Then the Christians took over. No learning. Backwardness. And then finally, thank goodness, enlightenment. We got learning again. So it was a Great Interruption. But he says there's just one problem with that. It's a myth. And it's been taught on and on in high schools and colleges. And he even mentions Stephen Jay Gould, who is no Christian. And he's, he talked about that tale about the, the flat earth being false. Said few medieval scholars ever doubted the earth being round. Oh, well, that's interesting. And he says scholarly opinion was pronounced that the earth was spherical. Even uh, C.S. Lewis gets into the action here. He's an expert on Renaissance literature. And Lewis said all the authors of the high Middle Ages agreed that there was a spherical earth. 
And then he goes through some of the famous Christians, St. Augustine, uh, Venerable Bede, Thomas Aquinas, Roger Bacon, Dante. They all said the earth was a sphere. Well, the idea that this, there was a myth out there of, you know, that the earth flat, people were worried about it, says the earliest promoter of that myth turns out to be, ready, Washington Irving. Really? Yeah, Washington Irving, the guy that did some of those great short stories. Well, he, you know, like Rip Van Winkle. Well, apparently he did a biography, and I haven't read it, uh, about Christopher Columbus's life and voyages. They said it's largely fictitious. And he makes it sound like, you know, all these professors and dignitaries of the church thought it was a flat earth and that Columbus would fall off the edge. And he said that was nonsense. And uh, that's kind of sad, isn't it, that they would just twist stories like this? Let's go back. He says, let's, let's come up to modern times, though, and talk about who the most important salesmen of that flat earth myth were. Who were the, those people that really got it out into the public? He says two people. John William Draper and William Dixon White. And in the 1800s, late 1800s, Draper put out something called History of the Conflict Between Religion and Science. And you can tell from the title what he's going to believe. And then uh, White put out a book called The Warfare of Science. And so here we go, History of Warfare. So Draper uses that flat earth myth to illustrate he really hated Catholicism. So his thesis with the Catholic Church was antagonistic to learning. And even in there, he says, traditions and policy forbade the papal government to admit any other than the flat figure of the earth, as revealed in the scriptures. Really? Well, not true. It says, Draper went after the Catholics any time he could to talk about their opposition to science. He said the church had a bitter, mortal animosity towards science. This is Draper's words. And he concludes, Draper again, religion must relinquish that imperious, that domineering position which she has so long maintained against science. There must be absolute freedom for thought. Well, White came along, again, late 1800s with his book, and he was not quite as harsh as uh, Draper was. So his book, Draper's book, because it was a little less harsh, went through 50 printings in 50 years. It was the most successful 19th century project about science. It was the first book, they, they say, probably the first book that really declared science and religion at war. They hadn't known that or hadn't thought about that before. Well, White's book also inspired a, a later author, Bertrand Russell, a philosopher, probably heard of him. He wrote a book called Religion and Science in 1935, and he came up with the same idea. Oh, there's been a prolonged conflict between science and religion. He says, waged by traditional religion against scientific knowledge. And his idea was that the Greeks and the Arabs were wise. Uh, they learned from the Greeks, and that was the approved storyline. But then came the Dark Ages, Christian domination. But finally, liberation in the 15th and 16th century was at hand, and science began to challenge the church. So that's Bertrand Russell. And he talks about uh, the Copernican Revolution. You know, where was the Earth? Was it in the center of the universe, or was it a, a small planet orbiting the sun? So Russell talks about that as being a pitched battle between theology and science. Really? Well, how did the Copernican theory threaten the church, according to Russell? Well, it took the planet from its central position, and it kind of pushed us off to the edge. And so 
man does not have any cosmic significance, according to Russell. We're, we're on the sidelines. We're an insignificant little glob uh, on one small planet. And so the history is wrong, as the author Bethel points out. The critics of Copernicus were not concerned about dethronement. In fact, the objection to the Copernican system wasn't that man was dethroned, but he was actually elevated. Why? Well, the center of the cosmos, which would be the pre-Copernican idea that we're the center of everything, that was not a good place to be. That's where earthly matter fell. And it was like humanity's fallen state. If you were placed on a planet, that actually moved you up market. Isn't that interesting? I didn't know that. Uh, what's the other side to the story? Copernicus? He was a church leader in a Catholic cathedral. So I think that's interesting. He summarized his conclusions, came out with a book. And the Pope, Leo X, he was informed of that theory and he expressed interest in for some time, the heliocentric hypothesis won people fa uh, favor. So I thought that was interesting. Copernicus was never remotely persecuted by the church any way at all. Oh, but here comes the Galileo story. And so Galileo looks out there and he sees evidence that Copernicus got it right. And uh, Galileo was told, you know, he's going to put out a book. He was told by people in the church, a cardinal, that if you just put in a few sentences that declare Copernicus' work is theory, it's not proved, just that would clear up the matter. Well, Galileo is working on this book called Dialogue of the Two Chief Systems of the World. And he showed it to the Pope. Pope said, yeah, go ahead, but make sure you mention it as a theory. So it got published in 1632, but Galileo was really headstrong and a tactless kind of guy. And in his book, he has a dialogue between two people. And the people who defend Copernicanism, in other words, putting the Earth in an orbit around the Sun, they were Galileo's close friends. But the person who objects, the person who says, no, 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 let's go back to the earlier system, the Earth-centered, geocentric, he has a character named Simplicio, which basically means, you know, stupid. And he rejects the new astronomy with childish arguments. And it's in Simplicio's mouth that Galileo put that part of the text that the Pope had asked him to. So it, it starts sounding like the Pope is stupid and that uh, the idea of the what the Pope said is just a theory, that made it, that look kind of stupid. And so it got suppressed at that time. And he was brought back before the Inquisition and he was sentenced to imprisonment, but it got commuted. So he never got imprisoned. He went to his villa near Florence he just had to recite some psalms daily. Well, his daughter did that for him. Now, he couldn't leave the grounds, but he's free to pursue his studies and teach people and write books and receive visitors. I guess among them was actually the famous English poet John Milton. So he was really looking for trouble, Galileo was, and the church was willing to fight him. But what was going on, especially if we look at the bigger picture, you had the Protestant Reformation. And the church was very concerned about Protestant inroads more than science. And so it had to improve its relations, in a sense, with the Bible Belt. And so, anyway, that's part of the structure going on. The, the, the Catholics at the time there hooked their wagon to Aristotle. And they didn't want to see any kind of change going on then. And Galileo handled it so badly and made a fool out of the church people that uh, that was really the issue. It was not his science that was uh, the problem. 
Okay, so I thought that was interesting material. Let me take just a couple of minutes to go through chapter 13 in this book. It's called By Chance or By Design, which basically says, how did we get here? We really have two choices, don't we? We either got here through an intelligent designer or evolution, which elbows God aside and says it's just a mechanical um, method to get here. So I want to talk about, uh, I'm going to go to the part where he talks about the mechanism, which is the survival of the species, adaptation. And I said, there's, really, there's no real, really good definition for what does it mean to be survivable and to be the fittest, survival of the fittest. It's just, if that animal survives, then that must have been the fittest. Well, that doesn't prove anything. It's just some organisms leave more offspring than others. And I said, um, you know, it's sometimes reckoned that something like 99% of all species that have ever existed have gone extinct. Well, then Darwin's evolutionary idea is just that meager claim that species are well adapted until they're not. That's kind of an odd way to argue, isn't it? He says another weakness of Darwin's theory is natural selection doesn't play any role until the organism already exists. So to try to explain how things got here, you've got no explanation for that. And I've heard it said this way, Darwinian evolution can tell the survival of the species, but not the arrival of the species. So I thought that was a good way to put it. Let me pick up here. I think this is really interesting about irreducible complexity. And you've probably encountered that somewhere else, or you've had somebody talking about that. Michael Behe put out a book called Darwin's Black Box, arguing and wondering how did complex biochemical systems come into existence in the first place? So that's that argument about arrival. And he said, uh, nobody has any idea how the mechanisms came about. In fact, Francis Crick, the co-discoverer of the structure of DNA, was so frustrated by that, he's proposed that the Earth was seeded by spores that were engineered on a distant planet. He called it directed panspermia. Well, was he joking? I don't know. But, I mean, you see, he's got such a problem trying to get life started, he's got to say life came from somewhere else and started it. And in his book, Behe looks at things like the biochemistry of vision, uh, our blood clotting system, and the cilium, which is a whip-like device that propels cells through fluids. They have dozens or even hundreds of parts that all have to be together. But how did they come about at, at one time? They all have to come about at one moment. Well, when Darwin had his theory going, uh, big time, people were falling in love with that. They didn't know what was going on in the cell. Uh, somebody once said the cell was just a simple little lump of albuminous carbon. Well, we know far different now. It's like a little city in there. All right. Um, you know what? I'm going to stop here because there's still one more chapter I'd like to do, but I'm going to hold off on that because I'm throwing a lot at you here at one time. Uh, but the book, again, is called The Politically Incorrect Guide to Science. And if you find science interesting, we're told these days we have to follow the science. The catch is... Science has gone in a lot of directions that haven't necessarily proved to be true. There have been some politics. There's been some money involved. And so we've got to be careful, even with somebody in a lab coat who tells us what is or is not true. So we just have to use our own uh, thinking. And this book has at least an alternate view that you might find interesting. Well, thanks, and we'll do another podcast soon.